Today is Resurrection Sunday, and I'd like to share a message with you called Resurrected, uh, a message about the power of the resurrection. Uh, that day, um, the day that Jesus, after having been separated from the Father, which we spoke about on Good Friday, about how Jesus was separated in a moment as he paid the price for our sins, the separation that we were supposed to experience from God, the judgment that we were supposed to experience, it all fell on Jesus on Good Friday as he hung on the cross. In that moment, he felt the tear in the Trinity as the Father turned his back on his begotten Son and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we discussed this on Friday that the reason why God turned his back on Jesus in that moment is so that he would not have to turn his back on us in judgment. The reason why we are received with open arms like the prodigal son falling into the arms of the father again. The reason why we get to come home is because of the fact that Jesus was put out from his home. The fact that he was sent away as a judgment, not for his sin, but for our sin. We are the ones who drove the nails through his hands. We are the ones who pressed the crown of thorns into his head as he took our place. And that's why it's a good Friday. It was the best and the worst day in all of history. It's the worst day because, because the judgment of God was poured out, but the best day because the righteous requirement of the law was met. And you and I were reconciled and reunited with the Father. And I love that saying that says, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. And today is that day. And the scriptures literally say that death could not hold Jesus. It tried. It tried with all of its might to keep him in the grave. But by the will of God and by the love of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, death couldn't hold Jesus. And he rose. On this day, he rose. Which means that he is alive today. He is alive. He is living. This is not a dead religion. This is not a process. This is not a procedure. This is not a program. This is not uh, something that we do to appease our guilt a little bit or to feel like we're reaching out for some divine source. This is a person called Jesus who is alive, who is speaking to your heart today. And he does it even when we don't understand how it works, even when we're not sure how it all works out or how it gets put together. You don't need to understand God's love to experience it. You don't need to understand every bit of the resurrection to experience the power of the resurrection in your life. All you need to know is that today Jesus is alive and he has got a plan for your life, for your life. And nobody in this room is excluded from that plan. Nobody in this room is overlooked. In fact, if you were the only person on the planet today, and if you were the only person who would ever have lived, Jesus still would have died for your sins. Because what he applies, what he did, he didn't just do for us, but he did for you. There's a moment when the gospel goes from being, oh, Jesus died for us, to a moment of recognition. Wait, wait a minute. Jesus died for me. Actually for me. Like he had your name on his mind as he hung there. Can you imagine him hanging on the cross, just saying, this is for Julia. This is for Benita. This is for Chris. This is for Claire. He, he had you on his mind as he died on the cross. 
And the Bible says something incredible. It says that after three days, when Jesus was raised from the dead, not only was he raised, but we were raised with him. He was raised as the firstborn among many brethren. If you call your child the firstborn, that doesn't mean that they're an only child, right? That means that you have more children. Whenever somebody says, hey, this is my firstborn, it means that they probably had subsequent children. Otherwise, it would be weird. They would just say, this is my onlyborn, you know, my only child. He was the firstborn among all creation because we are the children of God. And as he was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead as well. His new life became our new life. And so today I wanna take a little bit of of time in the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes and just talk a little bit about how we truly come alive in the gospel, how we truly can be alive and live out this new life in Christ today. How everything that this Easter weekend is about applies to each one of us in a very real and a very personal way. And I'd like you to go with me again uh, to the Gospel of Luke. We were in Luke 2 on Friday, and uh, today I want us to go to Luke 7. So if you have your Bibles or your iPads or your iPhones or uh, any kind of device that has a Bible uh, on it, uh, you can open that up and go to Luke chapter number 7. And I'm going to just read a couple of verses from verse 11 um, in this incredible Gospel. And again, it tells a story about Jesus' life and something that he did. Um, This is a moment where Jesus crashed a funeral, right? He crashed a funeral. There was this massive procession coming out of this town and, uh, and Jesus stepped in and changed the whole scene in an instant as he overrode the authority of death. He trumped the authority of death in this moment. Death took a young man and Jesus stepped in and said, it's not so. And he brought a change in this moment. It says in verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nine. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So all these people are following Jesus. As he drew near to the gates of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. There's this, this incredible crowd of people coming with a procession of death. And then you've got this multitude that comes with the life of Jesus. And they kind of meet here in the middle where, where life meets death at the town gates. And the town gates was the place of judgment. That's where judgment would be passed. That's where business would be done. It was the seat of authority, oftentimes in a city or in a town. And right here at this place of judgment, at this place of authority, death meets life. And we're gonna see which one wins. We're gonna see which one prevails. It says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now that word compassion in the scriptures, I've spoken about this often because it's something that compels the heart of God. His love for us causes him to have a compassion. The Bible tells us many times as Jesus looked out over the crowds, he had the same compassion. It tells us that when he looked at Jerusalem and realized how Jerusalem had rejected the word of God in so many ways and had rejected the Messiah, he wept for them. There's a deep compassion. And this is not just something where you feel a little bit sympathetic or empathetic in a moment, 
This is a deep pain on the inside of yourself. The Hebrew understanding of, of compassion is something that, that churns you up on the inside. Jesus sees this woman who had lost her only son, this hopelessness, this death, and he is moved with a compassion. And when God feels compassionate, it always moves him to action. It always moves him to do something about it. And so he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. The end of your sorrows are at hand. The end of your hopelessness are at hand. The end of, 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 of death is at hand. Don't weep. Don't weep. I'm about to do something. I'm about to do something in your, in your midst. Then he came up and touched the buyer. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. I just want to know what he was saying. I just want to know. When you just sit up and you've been dead, like what is the first thing that comes to your mind? What is he, is he like reciting recipes? Is he declaring the goodness of God? Is he continuing a conversation he was having before he died? I mean, what is happening to this man? But whatever it is, he sits up and he's so alive that instantly he begins to express. There's an expression that comes out of his resurrection. And Jesus gave him to his mother restoration. The resurrection and the restoration gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. Because <laughs> if you'd been to a funeral and somebody walks up and goes, stop, stand up, a guy speaks, here you go, here's your son. Fear would be the natural response. <laughs> Fear seized them all and they glorified God. Isn't it amazing how when people witness a resurrection in somebody's life, they instantly know that this couldn't be of man. This couldn't just be something, this is not a party trick, this is not something that somebody could have come up with. This is supernatural. And it leads them, the witnesses, to bring glory to God. Just like when God touches your life and you get raised from the dead and people recognize the change in your life, the restoration in your life, they begin to say, I need to know this God that you know. I want to experience this resurrection that you've experienced. I want to taste some of this restoration that I see in your life. The people bring glory to God, saying, a great prophet has risen amongst us, and God has visited his people. God, this is God. They recognize the source of this miracle as God. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This report of the God who is with us, who has visited us, who brings the dead to life, the news spreads like wildfire through the regions. I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us this morning and talk a little bit about this scripture in Luke 7. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that here on, Re on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, God, we can, we can look into the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you, Father, that this resurrection, this restoration, this life, this hope that we have, is not a hope that we could have, have created for ourselves. But this is something that comes supernaturally because God visited us in the person of Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. He will save his people from their sins. 
We thank you, God, that this morning we are resurrected, we are alive in Christ, and we are able to hear your voice. Your sheep will hear your voice and they will not follow the voice of a stranger. Thank you, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you speak to every heart this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen, amen. So um, life can sometimes be frustrating and we often get to these moments in life where we're just ready to give up. Like maybe not in the total sense, but specifically on the thing that you're doing. Have you ever tried to do something that was challenging and got into a place where you're like, I'm done with this now. I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I'm finished with it. After you've, you've, for example, spent hours and hours working on a document or a presentation for work or writing a paper or putting an assignment together and then, and then all of a sudden your computer crashes or, or the file gets uh, corrupted or uh, something like that. Has that ever happened to anybody? Come on, where you've like, you, you know, you, you've been working on a document, you spend hours and hours and hours on it, and then it just kind of disappears. It's happened to me before. And there is an incredible feeling that comes up, this, this, uh, this mix of disbelief normally that, like, I cannot believe this just happened, followed by an incredible sense of despondency. Like after all of that work, like how do you begin again? And I remember this happening to me once where I had written a study guide that had at, was at that point about 20,000 words and then losing the document, just completely corrupted and I couldn't save it anymore. I, I, I couldn't bring it back from the dead. I wasn't Jesus. I wish I was. Um, and the, yeah, um, I was going to make a really corny joke about how Jesus saves, but I won't go there. Um, and so I, I lost that document and I went and I just laid down on my bed, but not sleeping, just kind of in the fetal position, wondering what was left of my life right? You're just like so despondent. I've tried so hard and I can't believe that I've lost it all. Frustrations of life can become so great. I remember uh, when I started playing golf with a friend of mine, we were at the end of high school and we said, hey, why don't we start playing golf? And so we got these secondhand sets and we started messing around on the golf course. And, uh, and he was actually a lot more committed at becoming better than I was. Like he was actually a lot better than me. He was shooting good scores, um, you know, quite soon on. And whenever I went to his house, he was busy chipping in his backyard. And I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta put in the time and the effort that you're putting in because it's amazing how well you're playing. And we would play and for a year or two, um, every Friday afternoon, we'd go play nine holes and um, and we really just enjoyed it. And then he started to experience the frustration of not being able to break through to that next level of, of his game. And, and I remember one day playing with him and he was specifically struggling with his chipping that day. And after duffing another chip, he actually took his sandwich, threw it in the, in the little pond that's there at Wanderers Golf Course. And he said, I'm done. And he, he left. He like walked off the course. And I thought to myself, oh, he's just joking. He's gonna come back now. He got in his car and he left. He left me on the golf course. He was just like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't handle the stress. I can't handle this pressure. And for like, I thought, okay, maybe he just had a little bit of a breakdown as a result of the, of the golfing stress. Um, but let me, you know, give him some time. And a couple, but then for a couple of weeks after, I would ask him, hey man, so we should go play golf. And he'd be like, no, I'm done. I'm done with golf. And he just decided it's not worth it anymore. And he got that despondency where he just sat down and he said, that's it, I'm finished. For us, one of the most frustrating things that we can experience, way more frustrating than losing a document or, uh, or, or giving up at some sport that you're just really struggling to master, what's way more frustrating than anything else that we can do is our efforts to be good. Specifically, our efforts to be good enough for God. 
and I feel like I can just put us all in this category because I know that we all have a desire for good. I know that we all have a desire to be better. I know that we all have the desire to be better husbands and wives, to be better parents, to be better people, to be better citizens, to be better Christians. We have the desire and it's a good desire to have. But I also know because I've spent countless hours in conversations with Christians, the frustration that comes from knowing that you're not good. There's a a battle that goes on in your Christian journey. And we feel it. It's very real. It's a lot more real than that sandwich lying in the bottom of that pond at the Wanderers. It might still be there. This is something that actually brings us to a place where we don't know whether we'll ever be good enough for God. And it brings you to a place of despondency where you you look at your own life and you say, I'm supposed to be walking in the new life of Christ. I'm supposed to be a different person. I shouldn't be struggling with these things anymore. I shouldn't be uh, having these thoughts anymore. I shouldn't be battling these issues anymore. Surely, if I'm a Christian, I should be living in a new way. Why am I still struggling? C.S. Lewis um, writes about this and, and he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. He says, people that are bad think they know a lot about badness, but they actually know nothing about badness because they just give in to it. You only know how difficult it is to resist temptation if you've actually resisted it in the same way that you only know how strong the wind is if you've tried to stand against it. If you lie down, you know nothing about the power of the wind. In the same way, you know nothing about your own badness until you really try to resist your own badness and to stand against it. You know nothing about temptation. So people who are bad, ironically, know nothing about badness. But it's those that have tried very hard to be good that go, I'm, I'm really bad. I really don't have what it takes. And the longer you resist, a a person who resists temptation for five minutes knows nothing of what it feels like to resist temptation for five days. And the person who resists temptation for five days knows nothing about what it's like to resist temptation for five years. And so Jesus, as the only one who has ever been tempted on every point and never sinned, is the only person who truly knows what it means to resist temptation and the power of evil that exists within us as sinners. And so it's when you start to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be good, that you begin to realize how bad you really are. There's a a revelation in that for us. And eventually we reach a breaking point where we either have to start lying to ourselves about our goodness. In other words, you know how we do this? We focus on the areas that we're not so bad in. So, you know, there's like a hundred areas, you're good at like three. Like three things aren't an issue for you. And you're like, yeah, I don't drink, I don't swear much, and I don't lose my, my temper in traffic. But you don't talk about the other 97 things that you do actually do. You're like, I'm good, I'm good. We just deceive ourselves. Either that or we start bending the definitions of goodness. Yeah, but you know, what does it really mean to be good? As long as you have good intentions in your heart and we're not perfect, as long as you're trying. Or at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. You know, no, no, he's like the ultimate point of like reference point for badness. 
Hitler. Great, thank you for not killing millions of people. You really are good now. We bend the definition because we cannot be honest with ourselves oftentimes. But when you've tried long enough and tried long enough and tried long enough and tried long enough and failed and failed and failed and failed and failed, you finally get to a place where you can be honest. And there's a despondency in it, but I wanna call it a blessed despondency where you give up. You know, Watchman Nee writes about this and he says that the Holy Spirit, if you are trying to save yourself, if you're trying to be good enough, the Holy Spirit will allow you to continue failing until you realize that you cannot do it in your own strength. So God stands back and he goes, okay, be good. Go and be good. He, he, when when, when uh, the, the lawyer came up to him and asked him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the law tell you? He says that, and he, he mentions the, the rabbinical summation of the law, to love God with all your heart and to love everybody as yourself. Jesus says, sure, go and do that. <laughs> go do that. Just love God perfectly and love every single person around you perfectly. You won't sin, go. And this guy, the Bible says, then wanting to justify himself. He realizes, wait, I can't actually do that. So let me create a parameter in which I can lie to myself about how I can save myself. And he goes, but who's my neighbor? You know, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Let's define this now. You know, it's surely not everybody. Let's make this quantifiable. Give me some steps. I'll be good. Jesus goes, nope. And he tells the story of the good Samaritan. I believe Jesus is the good Samaritan and we are the ones who have tried very hard to be good and are lying beaten on the floor broken on the floor. The law, the Levite, the priest, they look upon our brokenness but can do nothing to help us. It's only the good Samaritan, which means the keeper of the law, who can actually come to where we are and bring healing to our lives. A lot of people think that being a Christian means never giving up on trying to be better. I hear Christians have these conversations about being better and it frustrates me because I'm like, you're missing the point of the gospel. They say, you know, as long as you keep trying, as long as you just keep pushing and you keep trying, and, and people see Christianity as just soldiering forward through your, your imperfections and making new promises to God. How, how many of you have ever made a promise to God? God, I promise you, I'll never do this again. I've learned my lesson, God. Never, never. Then like two days later, it's like, hey God, I know I said. <laughs> right? And we just make new promises and new promises and people get to a point of that despondency where they're like, how many more times will God believe my lies? How many more times will I break my promises to God? I call it a blessed despondency because I believe that God actually waits for us to give up on our own strength so that he can step in and save us. He waits for us to recognize our inability to save ourselves so that he can save us. And so I would say to you, one of the best things that can ever happen to you as a Christian is when you give up. When you give up on your own goodness, when you give up on your own strength, when you give up on your own efforts to try and make yourself right with God and you, you die to yourself. You die to yourself. We spoke on Friday about how the angel showed up to Mary and to Joseph and 
told them that the son that was going to be born to them would save his people from their sins. In other words, the prophecy over Jesus' life is that he would be a savior, somebody who would come and rescue his people. And so here's the problem. If you are still busy saving yourself, you're not looking out for a savior. You're not looking for a savior. It's like if you get caught in a current in the ocean and this rip current is pulling you out to sea, but you're, because of your own pride, not wanting anybody to know you're in trouble and everybody's like, hey, are you okay? And you're like, you know, five, 600 meters out to sea. You're like, no, no, just taking a swim. I just wanna see what's out here. You know, the lifeguards won't come in because you're determined to do it by yourself. And I've actually heard stories about how lifeguards, when trying to save people that are splashing and kicking and doing everything to save themselves, would actually sometimes knock the person out. Because if you're fighting, you can't be saved. But when you've given up, a savior can step in. And God wants to step in. He's asking you to stop trying to save yourself by being good enough to be accepted and to allow him to bring you back to life. To allow him to do the work. This is why people reject the savior. This is why people get religious. This is why Jesus had so much to say to those who were religious. Because it tells us in the book of Romans that they did not want to submit to the righteousness which came from God, to the salvation, to the saving of Jesus, because they wanted to establish their own righteousness. Wanting to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness which comes from God. You have to come to that place where you realize, I don't have what it takes. I need a savior. So Jesus comes to a funeral and a young man is being carried out of the city on his way to his burial. And Jesus stops this procession. He has this great compassion for this young man who is dead. And he walks up to the coffin and he speaks life into that young man. And he sits up and he comes to life. He comes back to life. He is resurrected in a moment. All of a sudden, this boy that had been dead is alive. Just think about that for a moment. He was dead. How much can you do for yourself when you're dead? Like, is there any amount of willpower that he could have had lying in that coffin to go, yeah, you know, I don't really like small spaces, so let me do whatever I can to get out of here. He could do nothing to save himself because he was dead. And if he was dead, If he wasn't dead, could he have been resurrected? Can God call something to life if it's not dead? It was actually, for him, the most incredible thing. I'm pretty sure he was having a conversation with Jesus afterwards saying, I'm so glad that I died, because if I hadn't died, you couldn't have raised me from the dead. I'm so blessed that I passed away because it meant that you could come and save me. And now I know the resurrection power of Jesus. 
So if you in your own life haven't come to a place where you've been able to die of your own efforts and die of your own self and die of your own religion and die of your own thoughts of being good enough, can you really know what it means to be resurrected? Can you really walk in this newness of life if you haven't passed away from the old one? This is why death is not the end, but only the beginning. The Savior comes. He speaks the life. He speaks the gospel. He speaks the truth into our hearts. And all of a sudden, the people say, God has visited his people. Jesus has come to be with us, and, and he, has been, he has resurrected us. It's amazing in the story of Mary and Martha, another opportunity that Jesus had to wreck a funeral, and he took it. In fact, Jesus created the opportunity. If you go and read the scriptures um, about Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, how Lazarus was sick, and so they send for Jesus, and they say, Jesus, please come. Lazarus, whom you love, is, he's, he's, he's on his deathbed. He's going to pass away. You need to get here, and the Bible tells us Jesus delayed three days. He actually waits. No, no, it's cool. They're like, but Jesus, he's going to die. He's, you love this guy. He's, he's going to pass away. And Jesus intentionally waits for him to die. And then shows up four days later. And Martha and Mary, they come out and they're like, if you had only come when we first sent for you, he could still have lived. And Jesus says, don't worry. Open that tomb. And he calls Lazarus back from the dead. He calls him back from the dead. You see, once we have died to ourselves, once we have passed away of our own efforts, Jesus can begin to speak into your life and he can bring forth his life from within you. He is the resurrection and the life. In John 12 verse 24, it says, Jesus actually saying this, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's much fruit that abounds in our lives the moment we die. And Jesus is speaking about himself in the scripture. He is the one who fell to the ground and was buried in the earth and died, and the, the results, the resurrection power, the results of his death multiplied to all of us. But the scriptures tell us, and I'm gonna read one of those verses in a moment, that when he died, we died with him. And so now, when we are resurrected, we're, we're resurrected in him. And that fruit just multiplies, multiplies, multiplies. You see, the, whenever you preach this message and you talk to people about giving up in their own strength and not trying harder to be better, people go, oh, 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 wait, this message is a dangerous message because people are just going to do whatever they want and they're just gonna, they're just gonna, they're just gonna give up and they're just gonna, but in the book of Colossians chapter number one, and I don't have this verse up there, it tells us that wherever the gospel is preached, wherever people understand, and go and read this in Colossians one, it says wherever um, the grace of God in truth is heard, and understood, it produces fruit. He says, it produces fruit in you, even as it does across the world for all those who hear it. The gospel is the power of God. And when we hear the message of the fact that we cannot save ourselves, but God died for us, and in that moment of faith, we 
give up of our own strength. We, which is really what it means to die to yourself. In that moment, there's an incredible fruit, a bounty, a harvest that, of righteousness that is revealed in your life, of passion, of fire that is revealed in your own life. So the gospel calls us to die to ourselves. Christians know this. They know. They've heard the message. Die to yourself. Question, how? Because I remember as a pastor preaching always, we're going to die to ourselves. And then somebody just asked me simply, how? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I didn't know at the time. I was like, my best effort was like, take opportunities to deny yourself. You know, like when there's one piece of chocolate left, give it to someone you love. Or, or, you know, when you're in traffic and you get cut off by a taxi, pray for him or whatever you can do. Just take opportunities to die to yourself. I thought that's how you die to yourself. The problem is, where's the focus in all of that dying? It's on me. It's on what I'm doing. So a lot of people work really hard on dying to themselves. And that's like trying to forget what you look like while looking in a mirror. You're looking at your face going, forget now, forget. Yeah, just forget that hair, just forget the, the, forget the eyes, forget the nose. Okay, it's still there. No, forget. You can't die to yourself if you're constantly looking at yourself. When your faith is in yourself. And so, in their attempts to die to themselves, they're actually resuscitating themselves. They're bringing themselves more powerfully, the flesh, more powerfully to life. Being focused on yourself and self-effort is like the defibrillator of your flesh. Like every time you're like, okay, I'm ready to give it all up to Jesus. Am I up, have I given it up to Jesus yet? Boom, you're awake again, okay. You're doing the opposite by focusing on yourself. No, when you die to yourself, your thoughts are no longer on yourself. You're no longer thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about your Savior. And that's what happens when you hear the voice of Jesus. When, you, when, the, when the sound of the gospel reaches your ears and you realize in a moment, in the most freeing way and liberating way imaginable, I can, get, I can let go because my Savior is here. I can give up in my own strength because my Savior is here. Because Jesus is enough. Either the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was enough or it wasn't. Either he died and made you right with God once and for all as the scriptures proclaim or he hasn't. But there can't be a middle road there. If you hear the voice of Jesus, you realize it's enough. In Philippians 3 verse 8, and I'm coming in for a landing here, but in Philippians 3 verse 8, I read this scripture um, on, on Friday morning. Paul says, I had so many things that I could have taken a stand on. So many things that I could be proud of. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was, I was a man who had accomplished much. I was learned. I was under the, one of the greatest teachers in all of Jerusalem, Gamaliel. I was being trained up as the next prodigy within the, 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 the Pharisaical system. I've got so much to take my stand on, according to the law. But in verse 8, he says, For his sake, for the sake of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
all the previous accolades that I could have said, yeah, but I'm a good person. Look, I'm a good person. Look, I know the law. Look, I can recite the first five books in the Bible. I mean, who can do that? He could do that. Look at how good I am. He goes, it doesn't matter. How much I've studied, how much I've learned, how much I've obeyed the law, it's all rubbish to me now in order that I may gain Christ. You die to yourself so that you can be resurrected. You die of your own efforts so that you can be raised by Christ. He says, and be found in him. I want to be found in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. Right there is your answer. Right there is your answer. How do you die to yourself? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. The moment you do that, it's not about you anymore. It's about him. You're not your own savior anymore. He is. You've let go. You've said, Jesus, I can't do this. I need you to save me. And he steps in with the might of heaven, with the resurrection power that he, that he won at the, at the grave site when he arose from the dead. He steps in and he brings you back to life. And so dying to ourselves means looking away from ourselves. It's not just giving up, but it's looking up. It's looking up. It's putting your faith in Jesus and being raised from the dead. And the Bible tells us that that is why it is the grace of God that saves us, that we are saved through faith by grace, that God saves us as we put our faith in his goodness, his ability. And grace simply means that you didn't do it for yourself God did it for you, even though you didn't deserve it. The moment we put our faith in that, we are dead to our own selves and alive in Christ. Brand new life in Jesus. And this sets you on fire. Contrary to what you might think, just receiving grace and giving up will do. It actually sets you on fire because there is no longer anything that hinders you from experiencing the power of, of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he says, I don't want to be found not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God as a gift that depends on faith. Listen to this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. When you put your eyes on Jesus and you stop worrying about yourself, and you stand in his righteousness as a gift as opposed to your own righteousness from your works, what happens is you begin to know the power of resurrection. You begin to understand how you have been raised to life. And the resurrection power of Jesus changes things in your life that you thought you were gonna live with forever. It changes situations that you thought could never be changed. It brings healing and restoration to your life in a way that you thought was impossible. And all of a sudden you go, because I put my faith in Jesus, I experience, I have come to know the resurrection power of Jesus. My prayer for us as a church is that we would run on resurrection power. That everything that we do, everything that we say, every mile that we run is run on the power that comes from knowing him and his resurrection. My sincere prayer is that every single person in this room today would come to know the power of his resurrection. That you are alive because he is alive.
that you are united with Christ, resurrected and reunited. That's our journey. Our journey is simply not to gain something for ourselves, but to grow in what we've already gained. To grow in our understanding of what this resurrection is and have it permeate and change every bit of our lives. My final scripture, Romans 6 verse 4, it says this, it says, we were buried therefore. Can I, can I do this? Can we say this? Just say this about yourself. Say, I was buried. Just go ahead and say that. We were buried therefore by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, might, we too might walk in the newness of life. Just say this, say, I have been raised to life. Say, I died with Christ. I have been raised with Him. That's the truth about your life. You died with Christ, and the life that you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God. For if we have been united with Him like this, in His death, we will certainly, there's no doubt about that, certainly also be raised to life as He was. Most certainly. Amy or Theo, if you guys are here, you can come up and just play for me. I'm gonna land here today. So on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the fact that Jesus was resurrected because his resurrection means that we've been resurrected, that that same power lives in us, that the same power, God raised Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and that same power gives life to your mortal bodies also. It's not a different power, it's not a lesser power, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it's at work in you. And you go, but I'm not worthy of that. None of us are. It's by the grace of God. So what is it that you're holding on to today that you're saying, I don't know if God can resurrect this. I don't know if God can do this. I don't know if the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within you. There is hope for every single one of us because of the resurrection. I wanna encourage you, church, stop resuscitating yourself and start resting in the finished work of the cross. Start resting in the finished work of the cross because our rest is our resurrection. Our rest is our resurrection. Our death brings about new life and we have it today. How do you die to yourself? How do you step into this new life with Jesus? By faith. If anybody believes, confesses with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, that He was sent from the Father, that He died and was raised to life again, He will be saved. We are saved by faith. That's the good message of Easter. That's the message of Resurrection Sunday. The grace of God is yours. Let go 
and let God save you. This morning, I want to pray for us and I want to give you an opportunity. If you want to make a decision, it's simply a decision to put your faith in Jesus, to go, I believe that. I choose to believe in what Jesus did for me on the cross. In that instant, your sins are wiped away because it's part of your old life. It's done away with. You were crucified with Him. It's buried. And in an instant, you're raised to life. So if that's you here today and you want to receive this new life, I'm going to give you that opportunity simply through a prayer, a declaration of faith. Let's go ahead right now and just close our eyes.